The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of God Families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This has been God's word. I feel the need to uh, introduce myself, although I know a lot of you, there's a lot of new faces. My name is Justin Kramer. My wife and I have been members since uh, the very beginning here. And uh, my wife and I were actually, we were in um, San Francisco about a year and a half ago, and uh, we ventured south of San Fran and ended up looking at all the campuses like Google and LinkedIn, and, you know, both my wife and I were born in South Carolina, so kind of a a different deal out there. Um, And so we went to Facebook's campus, which looks way different than I would have thought, but yeah, and, and I was recently doing some reading on how Facebook started, which many of you probably know. We've all seen the movie. Maybe some of you haven't. Social Network. Uh, it's always interesting to understand the backstory of where someone or something has come from, right? So if you just see Facebook, a couple billion users, um, uh, so many other uh, facets of how they conduct business and other stuff, but to know where they started, I was um, on a tour of Harvard's campus, and it was interesting because the tour guide said, 
Uh, right here is where George Washington uh, slept when he was leading the Revolutionary War, and there's where Mark Zuckerberg founded Facebook. There were dorms right next to each other. And we're doing a good work going through the book of Acts, because Facebook is less than 15 years old, isn't it? But the church of Christ is almost 2,000 years old. And the church that we see today is in large part to the saints uh, of the first century, to the men and women who uh, found it more desirable to serve Christ uh, than to do anything else. And it cost them. It cost them in their lives. It cost them their families. It cost them a lot. And so it's good that we're going through the book of Acts so that we as a church know where it is we come from. And so we, this morning, find ourselves in Acts chapter 3, if you guys have been with us. Uh, if you haven't, if this is your first Sunday, uh, a lot has happened, but not too much that you'd be lost. Uh, so the Holy Spirit's come down, right? Christ has uh, been crucified, risen, and ascended into heaven. He sends his disciples. They wait for him, his presence, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes down. And so now... We have a distinctly different, which Dale was alluding to earlier, distinctly different type of relationship with God post-Pentecost or post the Holy Spirit coming. And so Acts chapter 3 is really only the second time that the disciples have ventured outside of their little clique, their little group. Uh, And that's where we find ourselves. That's the construct of Acts chapter 3. Before we start, let's pray um, and ask for God's help in understanding his word. Father, you certainly have something here for us. Acts chapter 3 is a feast on the person and work of Christ. And whether we know it or not, we are hungry this morning, all of us. Hungry to be filled by something that will last hungry to be filled by what the early church Christians were filled by, which is the substance of your spirit. Lord, anything that you do not want your children to hear, would you remove it from my mind? Lord, and what you want to be said this morning, would you illuminate, would you pronounce We all come with different needs this morning, and you being a good but complex God, know each of us intimately. So would you come and meet with us in our time together, and let me serve your people well. In Christ's name, amen. If you have your Bible, it would be helpful to be in Acts chapter 3. I'm not sure what page that is on the Bibles under the chairs, but what is it? Somebody call it out. 9-11, thank you. It's page 9-11. We'll be referencing a lot of scripture this morning. Uh, Probably won't have time to flip to it or write it down, but I guess that's why we have podcasts, so you can go back and listen to it if you missed something. Um, We're going to break down, we're going to think through the whole chapter of Acts chapter 3 in three scenes, or three segments, Right? Verses 1 through 10, verses 11 through 16, and verses 17 through 26. 
And while there is some connection, they are almost three very distinct and separate scenes that Luke writes. And so the first scene, verses 1 through 10, we'll be looking at the power of the Holy Spirit. The second scene, verses 11 through 16, will be the, the death of the Son. And then finally, verses 17 through 26, which is really probably the apex of Acts chapter 3, it's the kindness of God. And so Luke really uh, paints a, what we'll come to see as a, a really beautiful picture of the operating gifts and uh, intentions of each member of the Trinity. And so we'll just think through it in three distinct segments. So verses 1 through 10, what you have going on here is, so Peter and John have left their little gathering of their disciples, and they are going to the temple to pray, because even though they're now Christians, they trust on Christ's finished work for their salvation, they're still Jews. They're still Jewish. And so, as any good Jew would do, they're going to the temple to pray. And they pass uh, 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 what the text says is a beggar who's been there, and it's reasonable to assume they've probably seen him a lot. They probably are somewhat familiar with him. But for some reason, Peter engages with this particular beggar. The, the beggar asks for money, and it's a fairly famous quote. Peter says, I have no silver and I have no gold, but what I do have... I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Be healed. And so the man who never could walk, who is carried to this place almost daily to beg, can walk. That's pretty cool. And what is interesting is it says that the beggar was filled with wonder and amazement. That's, that's the same kind of language that we see just a chapter before in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes down on the disciples. And, and when Peter gives his first sermon in Acts chapter 2, it says the, the people were cut to the heart. And so there's a sense in which there's a, a wonder or an amazement or an awe when you encounter the Holy Spirit, which I think begs a broader question. What exactly is the ministry or the work of the Holy Spirit? Well, specifically in this set of verses, verses 1 through 10, the work of the Holy Spirit in Peter and John's life is, one, uh, opening their eyes to, to have compassion on this beggar. Right? It is Christ's love that compels us. We have no ability to love other people outside of the power of the Holy Spirit at all. And, and, and so Peter and John have their hearts softened to this beggar. But, but even further than that, the ministry of the Holy Spirit for Peter and John in this moment is a reference to Jesus in John chapter 14, when Jesus is looking and he's teaching the disciples, John chapter 14, verse, 20, verse 12 through 14, he says, and you will do even greater things than these. That's what he's talking about. This is at a time in Jesus' ministry when he's performing miracles, he's healing people, he's raising people from the dead. And so when Christ departed, ascended into heaven, 
he swapped with the Holy Spirit. And now the Holy Spirit has come down in the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same spirit that is living inside of Peter and John. I mean, think about that. The same spirit that as Jesus' lifeless body was on a, 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 a stone slab sealed with a rock that took four men to move, the Holy Spirit came and breathed life into Jesus' lungs and raised him from the dead. And it's that same spirit that's in Peter and John. And so when Jesus says, you'll do even greater things than these, what you've seen me do when I form and start and advance my church to spread through the Roman Empire, first in Judea, then Samaria, then to the ends of the earth, you will do even greater things than these. And so that's the evident work of the Holy Spirit in Peter and John. It's also referenced to, if you remember when we worked through Luke, Luke chapter 17, it's the parable of the faith. If you have a faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move, and it will move. That's what's happening to Peter and John here, which sounds good. And I think, if we're honest, uh, as American Christians, we have a pretty cynical view of stuff like this. Maybe you've experienced something like this, a miracle or a, a visible, tangible expression of the the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit in an overseas mission, uh, if you've traveled or, or done any of that. But for us, it's really hard to imagine that this is how the Holy Spirit operates today. So, what does the ministry of the Holy Spirit look like today in the life of the post-Pentecost Christian? So you and I, what does the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit look like in our lives? Let me give us, and this isn't an exhaustive list, but it's pretty close. There are eight markers that we see in Scripture of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you eight. Number one, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. The Holy Spirit convicts you and I of sin. That's John chapter 16, verse 8. He convicts concerning sin and righteousness. Number two, he assures us, the Holy Spirit assures us of our position before God. That's Romans 8, 16, that the Spirit bears witness that we are children of God. Friends, I don't know if any of you have ever experienced what it's like to feel like you are outside of God's mercy. But there are, there are very few things in this life that can torment you more than doubting God's goodness or your position before him. Early on, in the first couple years of, of my own personal walk, there were mornings when I woke up being convinced that I was going to hell. And worse, I knew it. And I was a Christian. But praise God in his kindness that the ministry of the Holy Spirit in my life prevailed. And that the Holy Spirit assured me of my position before God, which is not guilty. And so, friends, if you are experiencing some sort of doubt or some sort of despair, 
Holy Spirit will provide relief. One of his jobs. Number three, the Holy Spirit illuminates truth to us. That's John chapter 14, verse 26. The helper will teach us all things. Number four, the Holy Spirit prays for us. Romans 8, 26 and 27. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with utterances and groanings too deep for words. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody uh, and you feel such strong affections for them, whether it's a friend, a family member, a spouse, you don't have the words to communicate. That there, There's some sort of welling up or um, tenderness that you feel towards a particular person. You just don't know how to describe it. It's ineffable. You can't get words together. The Holy Spirit's affection for us in Christ is so strong that when he prays for us, Sometimes it's, it's, it's with words that are, are too deep for understanding. That should encourage us. That when we're not praying for ourselves, when we're turning and running from Christ, when we're pursuing sin and evil, when we're not loving our spouses, when we're refusing to trust in God, the Holy Spirit is praying for us. Number five. Holy Spirit confirms the will of God in the life of the Christian. You know, I think we've all asked at some point, whether it be a small decision or a big decision, what does God want me to do? What's his will? What should I do? Romans 9, 1. Paul is wrestling in this text in Romans 9, 1 with a very difficult theological truth. And he says... My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. And so after Paul wrestled through, the Holy Spirit came and affirmed what the will of God was in Paul's heart. And he does that to you and I as well. We don't have to fly blind. Number six. The Holy Spirit brings joy to the Christian. 1 Thessalonians 1.6 there. You received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Paul, in his letter to the Thessalonians, it's almost flabbergasting that they would be afflicted, they would be suffering, and still have joy. That can only happen if the Holy Spirit is present. Number seven, he gives us the words we should say. That's Luke 12, 12. In that moment when you don't know what you should say, the Holy Spirit will come to you and give you the words you ought to say. Sometimes it's for our own benefit and sometimes it's for the benefit of others. Lastly, number eight, maybe my favorite. The Holy Spirit, this is Ephesians 1, the Holy Spirit is the deposit of our future inheritance with Christ. There's a day coming when we will all stand before God. And we will either be clothed in his righteousness, the righteousness and finished work of Christ, or we won't be. And if we are, 
we are clothed in the righteousness and finished work of Christ. The next thing God says to us is, job well done, good and faithful servant, you may enter. Enter into what? Enter into an inheritance that Ephesians 1 says will take all of eternity to understand what is the height and the depth and the width of the kindness of God. So we will spend forever inheriting more and more joy and satisfaction and peace and rest. That the scripture tells us no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind could ever conceive that which Christ Jesus has prepared for those who believe. And our down payment for that, our pink slip, is the Holy Spirit. So let, let, me, let me just ask this. Do you see the work of the Holy Spirit in your own life? Do you see the unmistakable, clearly identifiable traits of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your own life? If you don't, let me offer two reasons why. Number one, you might not be a Christian. There's a sense in which, and let's just be honest, down here in uh, southern culture, there's a lot of good people. Raised in church, around the church, it is possible to benefit from the ministry of the Holy Spirit in other people's lives. That's Hebrews chapter 4. And we, we take the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit in someone else's life, a friend, a family member, and mistake it for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our own lives, falsely assuring ourselves of our position before God. And friends, if you don't see the ministry and work of the Holy Spirit in your own life, you might not be a Christian. Or number two, you are a Christian but you've somehow grieved the Holy Spirit. And that's a, a word used several times in Scripture. We see it really three distinct places in Scripture. But here's what it means. It means that there is some sort of unrepentant, even unacknowledged sin that has distance, has relationally separated us from the fragrance of the Holy Spirit. Right, So when, when we are converted, when, when God saves us, we almost have two noses. We have a nose that can smell the aroma of the sin and evil that we've come from. But we also have our, our nostrils illuminated to, to be able to smell the fragrance of Christ. To know what it means to, to have joy. To know what it means to love. And so what happens is, and this is David. David prays in Psalm 19 that... that Make known to me the depths of my sin. It is possible for us to have unrepentant sin that we don't even know about. And it begins to make our sinful and fleshly desires and our new Christ-like desires start to merge. We can't tell the difference. We find ourselves detached from God. We find ourselves empty. We find ourselves absent. Absent 
of the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit in our own lives. Luke, who's the writer of Acts, I think, strategically moves from the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is meant to illuminate or shine or put a flashlight, a big spotlight rather, on the work of Christ. And so he transitions, there's sort of a transition, which is point number two, verses 11 through 16. These same people that were yelling, crucify him, crucify him, were the same ones in Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 16, who find Peter's healing of the, the lame man to be totally cool. It says all the people, the same people, and some, some scholars think that it's possible that even the same people who were uh, welcoming Christ before his crucifixion, um, saying Hosanna, Hosanna, could have been these same Jewish brothers and sisters. And they, they begin to gather around Peter and John. And Peter's response is interesting. He, he, he lays the wood. I mean, I mean he, he totally goes in at these Jews. He says, you're sitting here looking because a, a lame man was healed and walked and thinking it's somehow me and John? He said, don't you know that the very person whom has given us the power to do this is the one who you just killed. Peter tells him, you killed the author of life. You murdered the Son of God. You are guilty for the worst sin ever committed. And Peter is unrelentingly harsh towards them. But here's a question. Did the Jews kill Jesus? Well, let me, let me ask you this way. Who killed Jesus? Well, in a, a literal sense, uh, the Jews and the Romans did. It's a Roman's spear who pierced his side. It was the Jews who yelled, crucify him, crucify him. In a spiritual sense, you and I had some part in that because it's our sin that hung him there. But in a providential sense, the Bible is explicit. God killed Jesus. God the Father killed his son, Jesus. My opinion or anyone's opinion is of zero importance. God's opinion is of infinite importance. Let me offer four scriptures. And I would encourage you to write these down and go back and reflect. Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. Romans 3.25, whom God put forth as a propitiation or sacrifice. God put forth. Acts 2.23, this Jesus 
delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And Isaiah 53.10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. King James says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. That presents a lot of problems, doesn't it? How could God, infinitely holy and righteous, perfect and loving, kill his son? How do you square that up? And it matters not just to answer this theological question. Doesn't it matter for you and I? How can we assert that God is infinitely loving and good and kind and merciful and in control over everything, yet experience some of the evil things happening to us that I know by looking in some of the people's eyes here that I personally know has happened. How do we square that up? Evil existing and God's sovereignty. The crucifixion, the worst sin ever committed, and it was God's plan. Not just his plan, but it says God was pleased to bruise him. God is sovereign over all things, yet he disapproves of many of them. God governs all things, yet hates some of the things that happen. This is a helpful quote, I think. The Bible makes a distinction between God's will understood as his purpose that is never frustrated in any event and God's will understood as his moral command to act a certain way. So, and, and we don't have time this morning to unpack all that that is, but let me at least offer this. The Bible is, is, is fairly clear that there is, uh, you know, the will of God in one sense, but not in another. So the way that we harmonize that is that there's God's sovereign will and God's moral will, which is what the, the quote indicates, that there's a, a sense in which he governs and is over all things at all times. And then there's another sense in which his moral will is how we ought to act ethically, from our actions. So here's an example from Scripture of how those two would interact. God gives the Old Testament law in Exodus 23, verse 7. Do not kill the innocent. Pretty clear. Was Jesus innocent? Yes. Did God kill him? Yes. Did God sin? No. Let's look at Acts chapter 4, verse 27 through 28 for some clarity on that. And this is, this is of infinite importance because it will determine 
our ability to either understand the significance of the cross and how evil can exist in this world and God still be good, or we won't. This is of paramount importance for Christians. Acts 4, 27 through 28. My eyes are getting bad here. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the, pro- and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That is part of one of the most majestic truths about God. That he does not sin even in his willing of sin to take place. To accomplish his purpose. Friends, if you wrestle with that, uh, I'm happy to spend time talking with you after church. Dale, Jonathan, Randy would be happy to unpack the implications of that in your own life. But here's what we can be certain of. That there is no evil. There is no event. There is no circumstance. There is no situation. That will ever occur in your life of which Christ is not totally and completely in control of. And that should be a gospel sigh of relief for us. No one can thwart the plan of God. Isaiah chapter 46, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And you know what his purpose for the Christian is? Is to present us blameless before God. He who started a good work in you, Christian, will finish it regardless of what happens. Which probably is a good transition to Luke's uh, apex here in chapter 3, verses 17 through 26. Why would God do this? Why would God do this? Ephesians chapter 2. Christ died to show us the immeasurable kindness of God, which is our third and final point. The kindness of God. Peter here, as we know, has just indicted them for the literal carrying out of the murdering of the Son of God. But look at this transition in verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. Going down to verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn. Peter knows something. You know what he knows? That nothing to this point that the Jews had done had removed them from God's grace, from the ability to experience God's saving grace. I was with a family member earlier this week who is an outspoken atheist. And 
Maybe you have a family member who either thinks that they know Christ, but their life doesn't seem to resemble it, or family member or friend who is blatantly belligerent to the gospel. Nothing that they have said or done to this point puts them outside the reach of the mercy of God. So we have that much more motivation to pray for them, to share Christ with them. There is such thing as deathbed conversions. It is for God's providence and God's plan and God's decision on when and how he saves someone. Our job is to steward every opportunity to share Christ with them. Because Peter knows even the Jews aren't outside of God's mercy. And he goes on to say, verse 20, after saying, repent therefore and turn again, your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. There is no such thing as peace outside of Jesus. There is no such thing as rest outside of trust in Christ. There is no such thing as life or anything. Which is a paradox, isn't it? That Christ, who we have never seen, we trust in him by faith. There's a day coming when we will have uh, um, faith by sight. When we see Christ face to face. But right now we have faith in what is unseen. But it's that unseen reality which provides significance and worth and valuation to every other reality. Christ is the the hinge point of all existence. And to know him is to know life. Why would God offer the Jews, the ones that killed his son, why would he offer them this kind of life? Why would he offer you and I this kind of life? Many of us are fairly cool in here, but we're not that cool. We, we don't really have anything to offer. Romans 2, chapter 4. Don't you know that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance? Later on in chapter 3 here. This is verse 27, 26. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first, to the Jews, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The Bible tells us we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And I have heard that phrase so many times growing up in the church. Think about that. 
you were an enemy of God. I was hostile in nature towards him. Every, my, my existence prior to salvation infuriated a holy God. And don't you know that it's no longer wrath that is on your schedule. It's no longer destruction and eternal torment. But it is infinite and immeasurable joy in knowing Christ. And Romans 9 said it wasn't because you or I did anything. We did nothing. That's the hardest kind of gift to accept, isn't it? The free one. And the one where you really know you actually didn't do anything to deserve it. But it's meant to illuminate and exalt the finished work of Jesus. And we don't have to get up tomorrow and strive. That is the worst part about every other religion, in my opinion. It would be so hard to be a Buddhist. It would be so hard to be Hindu or Muslim. Because of the requirements every day to earn your place in eternity. Now, this is what Peter says here at the end, to turn you from your wickedness. There is a sense in which we're turned from our wickedness and salvation, but we have a responsibility every day to pursue holy living. That is where, what Peter says, times of refreshing come from. Not just salvation. A.W. Tozer, who wrote the book, The Pursuit of God, which I think is back on our table, he says so many Christians get it wrong. We think that conversion is the last time that there's any sort of substantive change in our lives. Conversion is the beginning. The pursuit of Christ, sanctification, that is is where the journey is for the Christian. Do do we find our sin to be as odious as God does? I heard someone ask a question earlier this week. Do we hate our sin more than we hate Satan? Do we hate our sin more than we hate anything? The answer for most of us I'll speak for myself. The answer for me is usually, no, I don't. Friends, it is eternal life is experienced at conversion. Joy in life is experienced in sanctification. And if you don't pursue that and you are a Christian, you are missing out in immeasurable goodness from God. I think this is a helpful way as we, as we close to understand Acts chapter 3, to understand the work of the Trinity, to understand the broader theme of the Bible. God the Father planned our salvation. Jesus Christ, his son, purchased our salvation by his blood, and the Holy Spirit preserves our salvation. That is the kindness of our Father. That is the work of 
Christ the Son. And that is the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So as we spend a few moments here preparing our hearts for communion, I would encourage you to do this. Examine your own life and determine first and foremost whether you know Christ and Christ knows you. Because if you don't, friend, you can have the same joy and refreshment that Peter's offering the Jews 2,000 years ago. You can have it today. Christ made that possible for you. And if you are a Christian, I've had to come to grips this week in preparation with the ways in which I fail to pursue holy living, with, with, with the ways in which I fail to acknowledge and cultivate the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit in my own life. Let's take some time to consider how God would have us have substantive, real, Holy Spirit-inspired growth so that one day, this community, this group of Christians begins to reflect more and more the image of Christ to each other, to our neighborhoods, to our community, and to our world. Let's pray. Father, we know that you are good. Whether we feel that, whether we can always explain that, Whether or not we even at times believe that, you have been so kind to give us the Bible. To reveal the truth about who you are and what you've done for sinners like us. Lord, give us the the mental and spiritual capacity to understand as best we can this side of heaven the height and the depth and the love that you have for us in your son made tangibly visible in the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Preserve and protect your saints this week. Bring them back safely to your house next week. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.